everyone. Welcome back to the Geek Warning Podcast brought to you by the Escape Collective. This is your one-stop shop for everything you need to know this week in the world of bicycle tech. I'm James Wong here in Boulder, Colorado, and we've got our full tech editor crew on the show today. Uh, joining us from Sydney, Australia, is senior tech editor Dave Rome. Hi, Dave. Hello. Good morning. Good afternoon. You need some more coffee, Dave, I can tell. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just back in Ireland after a quick trip to the mainland is our resident go-fast expert, Ronan McLaughlin. Hi, Ronan. Mainland Europe? Well, yeah, isn't that where you were? Uh, yeah, I was. I was in. I was in Italy. Yeah. Uh, it's just I'd, I'd never heard Europe referred to as the mainland. Yeah, I guess the the, con- <laughs> the main continent, the-, <laughs> the the big big island, the, the big 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 island. The, the- <laughs> anyway, it's good to have the whole crew back today. Got a whole bunch of stuff to talk about, but uh, first, Dave, I want to know what you've written for the site lately that people need to check out. Uh, been a busy week. I mean, there was threaded last week, and then this week, uh, the weekend was was uh, spent writing about uh, yeah, new Favero Asioma SPD pedals, uh, and something from Silka, which we'll get into. Uh, a new wax product, which could be quite game changing in in some ways. But yeah, we'll we'll come back to that. And is not chocolate. And it's not chocolate. Um, I did send Josh Portner an email uh, saying, your new chocolate tastes like shit. <laughs> it's got kind of a weird color to it, too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he didn't disagree. So, anyway. <laughs> All right, Ronan, uh, you've been pretty busy with uh, with time trial gear. What what have you been writing about lately? Yeah, the Volta Algarve threw up a few... Uh, nice pieces of time trial tech for the first time this season. I spotted a new Cervelo P5 on Saturday, so wrote about that. That's up on the the website there, and also then the following day, I sort of spent the the entire day trawling through a couple of uh, photographers' galleries from that race and pulled out a few other interesting tech tidbits from the time trial. Also, there was a lot of teas there. T T T T. Lot lots of teas. Lots of teas. James, anything from you? Uh, probably, but I honestly don't remember. The last couple oh. weeks have been a little bit of a blur, I have to say. Fair, fair. Uh-huh. It's good to have you back, though. <laughs> well, thanks. Good to be back. Uh, well, I guess, as I just mentioned a little bit ago, we do have a fair bit of ground to cover on today's show, including uh, a deeper dive, you might even call it an immersion, ha-ha, uh, into Silka's new chain waxing setup, uh, what that might mean for the practice in general. Uh, we're going to discuss... Maybe the optimum format for power meters and what that is for different people. We're going to talk about Campagnolo's latest gravel products and what they say about the company's product development strategy, perhaps. Uh, and as far as indoor cycling goes, it seems like Wahoo and Zwift have probably kissed and made up for real. Um, first, though, we've got a quick little corrections corner or maybe more like a clarification corner, I guess. Uh, we yeah. mentioned in last week's episode that Giant had inked a deal with massive U.S. retailer Dick's Sporting Goods. Uh, and, well... Kind of like how that news went down on the internet. That news wasn't received very well. Uh, to be clear, Giant says the agreement does not include all 800 or so Dick's Sporting Good locations, uh, mm-hmm. but instead just the brand's kind of more premium locations called Dick's House of Sports, Public Lands, and Moose Jaw, uh, and of which there are only supposedly about two dozen or so. So no, you're not going to see Giant TCRs in every Dick's Sporting Goods location with like upward turned handlebars and backward forks or anything like that. So at least not yet. Yeah. Well, you're not going to see any of their road bikes in these locations because I think the deal is currently limited to kids' bikes and mountain bikes. So, uh, and then, yeah, it's kind of they're in specialty stores, which are kind of Dick Sporting Goods' uh, competitor to REI as far as w- where you'll see these. So, yeah, I was uh, a little off on uh, on imagining how widespread this was. So, anyway. Fair enough. And well, that's pretty much how everyone else read that news too. And I... Mm. I I'm going to go go out on a limb here and say that um, Giant maybe could have been a little more careful with their wording and how they put that out. Maybe, but anyway. <laughs> anyway, all right. Well, with that out of the way, let's go ahead and get into this week's news. Uh, Dave, tell us about this new chain waxing stuff from Silka. So Silka has two new products. One is a chain waxing station, which is basically a, a custom-made uh, hot pot a digitally controlled, temperature controlled hot pot with a little hanging stand above it, which looks quite nice, like a hundred US dollars and uh, all self-contained, 
prettier than a slow cooker. Uh, yeah, better heat control than a slow cooker. And uh, the shape of it is kind of ideally optimized for wax. So that's, that's one thing. Uh, but the other element to that that they've also released is called the strip chip. And uh, basically, they've come up with a, a product that converts oil into uh, more of a fatty acid, which more closely mimics the hardness of wax. So the theory is, is that you put a factory grease chain in straight out of the packet, still covered in oil, straight into a pot of wax along with one of these strip chips. Uh, and that strip chip then basically converts that grease and oil into uh, yeah, a harder substance and your chain is then waxed. And then from then on, you just keep putting that chain back into that same pot. James, I think you and I first heard mention this on a Silica presentation like way back like last April or something it was teased. So they've obviously been working on this for a while, but when it was teased, the the sort of picture I had in my head was you throw in this strip chip block and it somehow like drags the factory grease on the chain to the bottom of your your crock pot or whatever. But that like it captures it somehow. That- yeah, yeah, that, that was, was kind of, but actually what it is is sort of transforming it. Is that right? Yeah, so originally, I think I was in a similar conversation, and Josh, and this was quite a while ago, I think this product's taken quite a while to bring to market, but uh, Josh Portner was basically saying that originally, I think the the communication was that it sort of encapsulates the grease and, and protects it, you know, like it gives it this like, this barrier to stop it from damaging and uh, breaking apart the wax. That's not the case. Uh, it's it's actually yeah. It's it's uh, oleo oleogelation is is the technical term, and it's. Uh, I believe you referred to them as unicorn tears, Dave. Uh, yeah, oleogelation, aka unicorn tears, and as as the article outlines, uh, and yeah, it's basically a, a new science which is uh, aiming to be a a more health conscious way of of sort of like creating things like margarine, where oils are turned into solids, uh, and yeah, it's. A, Josh Bonner says, you know, they've partnered with the local university and that local university is sort of a, one of the leaders in the space. In the food world, he thinks it's probably still two or three years away. But yeah, that's that's the idea here is that it's it's kind of uh, chemically changing that, that grease into something else. Uh, well, I think uh, safe to say you've got all the technical details covered in the written article that you should definitely go check out on escapecollective.com. Um, but... There were a bunch of questions in the comment section that I think are worth addressing and definitely brought up some kind of bigger topics that I think are, are worth talking about today. Um, one thing that people were wondering about, so the the idea here anyway, is that you don't have to go through all the initial steps to like get a chain super, super clean before you dump it in the wax. Yeah. Um, so once you- don't need you, to go through any of those steps. Yeah. In uh, so yeah. W- once you pop in your factory grease chain into your pot of wax with this strip chip and go through that initial waxing step, what do you do with the wax afterward? Do you like do you just keep using it? What happens here? You just keep using it. So yeah, it's basically you only need a strip chip with any time you put a factory grease chain in. So they give you when you buy strip chip, you get six chips, which is enough for six factory grease chains. But in that meantime, you're basically just using it as normal wax. So uh, yeah, not it's not. The goal is not to waste any wax here. Um, yeah, for those reading that want to read the review, you'll find I, I did actually manage to test this. I did some back-to-back testing between non-strip chipped wax and, and strip chipped wax. But uh, and you used a gyrometer. I tried using a gyrometer. I had the wrong gyrometer. I was gonna say it'd be kind of hard uh, to use that on wax, wouldn't it? No, I mean that was Josh's. That was Josh's recommendation. I have a Shaw A gyrometer, which is kind of designed more for like rubbers and stuff. Whereas I think you need a Shaw. Zero zero gyrometer, which is more for like gummy bears. Uh, Dave, I'm surprised you didn't use that as an opportunity to buy one. <laughs> uh, who's, who's to say I don't have one in the way? Speaking of gummy bears, oh nice. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. So anyway, there's yeah, there's a lot of stuff in that in that article, but it's uh, yeah, fundamentally, it's you're not wasting wax with this product. Is is the goal of it? Um, as my testing revealed it the goal and the outcome might not be the the same things. Well, uh, another thing that was brought up is sort of the environmental benefits that this sort of thing might have mm. um, because by not using or by not having to clean the chain separately beforehand, you are also not using a whole bunch of probably pretty nasty solvents that need to be kind of disposed of or like have nasty, nasty fumes and stuff like that. Um, yeah. So is that something here that we should talk about? 
Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, uh, I think uh, that argument is always a tough one because say this product results in a less effective wax, then how much less durability are you getting out of the drivetrain and therefore are you creating waste at that end of the, of the product cycle? Uh, but yeah, certainly it, yeah, you don't need any degreaser with this. In in theory, if you're starting with a fresh cassette and, and chain rings uh, and you're starting with a freshly factory greased chain and you're putting that into a strip chip wax, then you may never need degreaser, uh, which is quite a crazy concept in a way. But yeah, you <laughs> assuming you yeah, you, you start with wax, then you for there on to clean your bike, you're using boiling water and that's basically resetting things back to you know perfectly clean back to bare metal and then from there on you just keep rewaxing. Uh so yeah, it it in that sense it could be a real game changer in that people may never need to use degreaser again. And I guess the other thing is I I know we've talked about this a whole bunch and for anyone listening who have been on when we've had Zach on the show and talking about chain waxing, one of the things that Zach has always talked about is that for people to really get the full benefits of waxing, it really does require that you do it properly. Mm -hmm. um, is this is this the sort of thing that really could potentially make that process, I mean, I guess for lack of a better term, kind of idiot-proof? No. Uh, I still, I still think waxing, like it's, you're still talking about having to take the chain off the bike to, uh, to wax it. And I think there's, there's always room for error there. Uh, you know, you often see people rerouting their chain wrongly through the derailleur or using master links incorrectly. Uh, so I think that's still a barrier. Uh, but I think it definitely opens up the door to more people trying it and doing it correctly. And I also think it, it, uh, if you combine it with the use of like a, a drip-on top-up lube, uh, again, it becomes far more accessible. Uh, so yeah, even for people that don't want to take the chain off and on all the time, this is a, a really good way of getting that chain ready for even a, a top-up lube. Uh, you mentioned David, it is it's not it's not a it's not a quick process. There there's a couple of steps involved in in using the strip chip and and yeah you have to increase the heat that you yeah. you melt the wax to etc. I'm yeah. wondering though if it's not idiot proof for lack of a better term is it perhaps quick and simple enough and cheap enough that actually it might be an option now for more shops to offer waxing as a service where they maybe want to sell a customer a drip wax but it's such a complicated process to get your chain ready to use drip wax that it's not for every customer walking into the local bike shop whereas if they can sell a bike or service a bike and when they're installing a new chain do this first strip chip wax preparation then perhaps that is a customer who could look at a drip wax in future yeah i mean i would i'd like to think shops have industrial parts washers that make you know that they but i, but I mean that's should, so much more yeah. time consuming though yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I think you're right. I think there probably is, and especially combined with Silka's new stand that you know goes up to 125 degrees pretty quickly, um, then yes, I think that will open the door to more shops offering wax chains as a service. Um, but that said, a lot of shops right now uh, have exclusive selling of muck-off products, so I also think there's a long way to go as far as uh, education in the space. Makes sense with a seven thousand pound mock off chain. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um yeah, I mean that's that's not to throw too much shade, but I I guess yeah, we're talking about um yeah, that there is testing out there that's proven some of these products really give huge, huge differences in, in absolute drivetrain durability and and uh yeah. You know, there's some brands that offer incredible margins and, and mock off is one of them, which is good business for a shop and uh, yeah, a, a wax chain, unfortunately, is a, as pessimistic as this is, chain waxing is is probably not great for shop business. You know, they, they, they'll stop selling chains, they'll stop selling cassettes, they, they don't sell lube anymore. Like there's, a, there's actually, as far as the bottom line goes, it's, it's probably not the greatest thing for them. Yeah, I think you, you alluded to it there, but the, the, the remaining question mark for me is, is it as fast? as all our waxing options, uh, yeah. which I mean so, so time will tell or testing will tell. Josh is, they're testing it. He says uh, early results are uh, surprising enough that they're trying to figure out why. Surprising in a 
good way or like yeah. surprising in, in what way? In, in a good way. Uh, I don't think it's my information to share, so I won't. But uh, but yeah, I, definitely. I, I finished the article with, you know, watch this space and, and that it that comes off the back of some of the things that I was I was told they're looking into and testing at the moment. It, it sounds pretty promising. And, and Josh certainly alluded to the fact that uh, they've already got some world tour wins on strip chip chains where they've perhaps given them to teams without the teams even realizing. I've seen world tour wins with non-wax chains. Sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this year. Yeah, yeah I don't uh, think that's a, a, a necessarily huge... Uh, what I was going to uh, say was, though, the success I think here, you, but, uh, yeah. I think you come at chain waxing from two different directions. You either want the the efficiency gains and the performance gains, and the yeah. durability gains are a, a a nice little add-on, or you want yeah. the durability gains and the performance gains. You, you are a nice little add-on. Either you might not care about them, but you know nobody's yeah. going to turn them down. Um, and so, if it's not as fast as a regular waxing you know, their super secret or whatever it's called, that won't be a problem for maybe half the chain waxing market. But Maybe. I mean, keep in mind there's a close correlation between chain speed and durability. Um, you know, the reduced speed often comes from reduced friction. Uh, but, so, yeah. But either way, it sounds like even from Josh saying that the results were kind of surprising for him. I mean, ultimately, yeah. it seems like the whole point of strip chip to begin with was to make the whole process just easier for people. Yep. Um, so if it does end up yep. being lower friction, that's just kind of a nice little bonus. Yeah. Um, but for sure, it really does seem like the pri- like that was the primary motivation is just to to make it simpler and more yep. approachable for people. I mean, granted, you know, the strip chips themselves are not very expensive, but uh, the process is still a little finicky, which is why Silica has that specific pot um, mm-hmm. because you like, they do have fairly narrow temperature guidelines that they want yep. you to stick to for this. So. Um, I mean, part of part of me makes me wonder if, or part of this whole thing makes me wonder is still if, like, you know, Silka has a lot of really good products. I think, but I think, as is often the case with stuff that was really developed by you know pretty hardcore engineers, a lot of this stuff, it it works the way you want it to when everything is the way you you know kind of designed around. Um, so, I mean. I don't really necessarily doubt right now that this stuff works the way it is supposed to. Uh, I am just mm. wondering. I think it works. I just don't think it works quite as well as advertised based on what I've seen. But the the thing is, is even if it works 80% as well as going through the multi-steps of degreasing and then proper waxing, that 80% is still so vastly better than most drip loops that yep. it's still yep. a better option. Better than, than, than drip non-wax lubes, specifically. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, uh, we will see, like, like you said, Dave, watch this space. Uh, I know Adam Kieran's in the po- process of getting some stuff in for testing, uh, testing Adam from Zero Friction Cycling. So we'll see how this whole thing goes. Uh, definitely interesting development, though. All right, so this week, uh, Italian power meter company Favero dropped their, I would say, pretty hotly anticipated new SPD-paced power meter pedals. Uh, They sound pretty good. You can check out Dave's full review on escapecollective.com for all the details. Um, But the fact that they exist at all kind of brings up an interesting question, I think. So when it comes to power meters in general, how do you decide what format makes the most sense for you, given that we've got pedal-based ones now and chain ring spider ones and spindle-based ones and ones that are built into crank arms? Um, Ronan, I'm going to toss to you for this one because I would say of the three of us, you're kind of the power meter guy. Uh, yeah, for better or worse, I probably am. And I don't know, I think it kind of comes down to ease of use, reliability, and accuracy. And you could probably also chuck in how aware you are of the power meter when you're using them. So if it's something like the Favero Asiomo Shi which is the Shimano Rode SPD-SL version, which increases the Q factor quite substantially. I By would, like eight meters. Yeah, I, I, I know we're going to get slid in the comments again. A lot of people say it doesn't matter. Have you ridden mountain bike cranks? I haven't. Well, I have, but I don't anymore. It makes a difference to me. I would feel that. And as such, that parameter is immediately ruled out for me. Yep. Other things Did like, I? you know, huge stack heights. And I do ride, and I ride mountain bikes, and I still found it too wide and awkward <laughs> on a road bike. 
apparently it's just you and I though, Dave. But uh, I'm gonna yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna stick with and it. and Shane Miller of GP Lama. I know he doesn't like them, so mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and he's a big Favero fan. So uh, I always find it surprising that uh, when I mention narrower Q factors, that is a problem for. I don't know if it's the same commenters, but <laughs> definitely, <laughs> definitely. Um, yeah. Anyway, moving on. Um, how how much they interact with my standard position let's put it that way so if it's a crank set does it increase the q factor does it um you know i'm gonna have to change bottom brackets or something like that i think most people probably start with budget so you look at you know what what budget do you have and then within that now the really the the two options remaining at this point are either pedal based or crank based uh, and then you've got single sided or dual sided that's probably already determined by your budget and you know from that point then you're probably into deciding you know, if you've already decided you want pedals or or crank, uh, and I've explained why usually it's not pedals for me, it's because of the Q factor, because of the, the stack. At that point, then you're sort of into which parameters you know to be reliable and reliably accurate, um, which is an en- entire rabbit hole that I'm going to dodge right now. Um, yeah, I'll yeah. just say I don't know how something that's I don't know how something can be inaccurately accurate, and I'll leave it at that. <laughs> yeah. Arun, I'll, I would add to your list uh, potentially the number of bikes you have yes, and the number of the amount of money you have to spend on those bikes. Uh, and then uh, modern compatibility is probably the other new new problem for power meters because in the past, like say when everyone was on 10 or 11 speed bikes, you could get an SRM crank and no matter what brand of drivetrain you had, the chain rings that it came with would probably work just fine. Whereas now you've got SRAM flat top to contend with. You've got new Durace 12 speed, which needs its own chain rings. You've got Campagnolo, maybe. Uh, and One by, two by. One by, two by. And all of these have created new problems. And I think that now dictates a lot of your crank-based choice. Mm-hmm. And say you've got two road bikes. One is you know, 11 speed and the other is 12 speed. And you don't want to have power meter. You don't want to buy power meters for both. Then at that point, that's where a pedal-based power meter is the option, right? Like you, that's that's the benefit to a pedal-based power meter is that you can move it between bikes. Mm-hmm. If you go on holiday, you can take it with you. Uh, and moving it between bikes means that you're pretty much guaranteed to always have the same figures out of the the one power meter. There's there's it's the same power meter. I think the a hundred percent agree on everything you said. I think the difficulty with most parameter pedals either until now or even still yep. now is that quite often we Think- want to ride SPD SL cleats on the road uh, and until now there hasn't been very many options and yep. uh, as a speed play fan mm-hmm. and as someone who has to ride so many different bikes what a hard life um, <laughs> I as such have swayed towards the Powerlink Zero Wahoo speed play parameter pedals of late and I am definitely not their biggest fan, but I've sort of weighed up the pros and the cons and the ability to move them between bikes easily and travel with them easily is why I've sort of stuck with them. That said, I do have the SRM X-Power, SPD, SL road version of those, the SRM's power meter pedal on the way. Uh, and so that that could well change. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's the thing with power meter pedals is historically they've added power but at the compromise to the pedal. Mm-hmm. They've either increased stack or they've reduced your cornering clearance or they've had bad bearings or something like that. And uh, that has always been the trade-off and, and the reason to stick with crank-based power wherever you could. Um, and I, I feel like we're slowly getting to a point where those compromises are, are far greatly reduced. I'm not going to say there's no compromise, but they're they're far less than they used to be. Because in theory, it seems to me that if you make the assumption, or let, let's just say we're in sort of an ideal world where we are not dealing with those compromises that we've talked about, um, if we're looking at it strictly from a format perspective, like just it being based in the spindle or based on the crank arms or based on the spider, that sort of thing, am I wrong in seeing that conceptually the pedals probably making the most sense for most people i almost interrupted i'll give you the most sense for most people but i i want to i want to i want to 
counter your statement with the fact that parameters are incredibly hard to get right and by yep. using a parameter pedals system you're a brand is effectively cornering themselves into having to get two parameters done well rather than the difficult enough job of getting one parameter on a bike done well so yeah I, I, yeah and, and pedals themselves with the different loads their placement of you know yeah. uh, it's, it, it, it's it's harder to get a pedal right it's even harder to get it right and again you've got yeah. two parameters to get right so it's a I mean, it's a it, bigger challenge i think if it was easy to get right we we would have had those metric gear pedals what like 15 years ago right <laughs> yeah yeah i mean some have got it more right than others let's put it that way yeah uh it's very interesting this topic i think we should probably get Again, Shane Miller, GP Lama. I think we might need to get him on a podcast because uh, in uh, a few hours before publishing the review, I, I reached out and asked him if he, you know, if his data was looking good on on these power on these asiomas, and uh, he he mentioned something that he just teased in his video, but didn't want to get to into because it's a proper rabbit hole. Um, but it does seem that the type of crank you mount a power meter pedal to might interfere with the oh dear god the figures so i would like to yeah i'm gonna put a shout out there if, if shane's listening let's get you on and have a uh a geek out session on the things people uh don't know about their power meters and perhaps don't want to know about their power meters i'm gonna go ahead and say this right now i'm gonna i'm gonna make this decision for all of us at the moment that this calls for a members only episode dedicated to this very topic. Yeah. I don't know if it'll be on geek warning or performance process. One of the two performance processes may be more suiting, mm. uh, more suitable, but either way, I think we need to have a dedicated members only podcast episode diving deep, deep into this rabbit hole on power meters. I'm, I'm yeah. And not, and not even answering speak. any questions, just making everyone doubt their power meters. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, uh. All right. Well, uh, I think it's safe to say we are maybe not going to answer this question definitively right now. Uh, so, but anyway, it is an interesting discussion topic. It it, it does bring up a lot of things to think about. Um, Coming back to Dave's review, though, for one second, because didn't Shane also mention that it was it, the new Asiomas are his could become his go-to parameter or my misquoting i remember some i read your yeah something along the lines of that it's it's his new baseline yeah which i mean is high praise uh, yes it is exactly um the uh, and i think it was in you know i i've had the favero asioma duo uh, look based cleat parameter pedals for four or five years at this point um I think I did kill them, changing them between bikes too often doing aero testing last year. Uh, and I killed them before that because I used them on gravel and got a rock strike on the power pod on the left side, um, which, I mean, is part of the reason for the new pedals and that the that, that power pod is, those goblins are now it's, contained within the axles. That's why they never previously recommended those pedals for off-road. Oh, even I knew. Though I, they, I, the even way that you could hack running. I, yeah. I, I was highly, I was entirely aware that the, I was using them outside their uh, recommended use case. Um, anyway, the point I'm trying to get to is that the the one part of your review where my heart sank a little bit was when I got to the part about needle bearings and the use of needle bearings. And I'm no expert on this, but having, having been a huge Speedplay fan and tried out the Wahoo Speedplay pedals uh, at the old place, and gone through five sets of them that were having issues related to the use of needle bearings that I I believe those issues have been resolved now. I've got a set of Wahoo pedals that don't have those issues anymore. Um, but so still running needle bearings? Have, see, this is this is my question is, yeah, have, have Favero got it right? Is there a potential there for so, issues going forward? Uh, so there is, uh, as my review covers, there is play in the pedal body mm-hmm. against the axle. Uh Favero say this is uh, a necessary amount of movement given the the bearing system used and that it, it won't get worse over time. And uh, again, Shane Miller, he had had these pedals a lot longer than I had. Uh, and he said that play did not get worse over time. Uh, I think it's still too early to confidently say. Um, but yeah, I mean, there is a small amount of play in the pedal body. I couldn't feel it when on the bike. Uh, and I guess bigger picture is 
you got to look at what the other options are. So you can either have like a uh, like a bushing, like a, a sort of a plastic nylon bushing, uh, which has been done before and known to when things go wrong, you know, can score the the spindle and 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 cause other issues. Uh, or you have a, a radial ball bearing, aka a cartridge ball bearing, and that then increases the size of the pedal body that you have to have. It it, it undoes the the stack height advantages. Um, and as for Vero say, it's it's got less than a third of the um, the raid loading as a needle bearing. So in the event of a mountain bike pedal, if you were to strike the pedal body against against a rock or something, as it's potential that you could uh, damage a ball bearing, whereas the needle bearing is designed to, to handle those impacts. So I think time will tell, but I think mm-hmm. they've, they've chosen this path for a very good reason and hopefully they've executed it correctly. Yeah, I'd, I'd just be able to, like, I read you about the play all existing out of the box and you're yep. kind of wondering you know if there's play is that yep. gonna and, you know is that gonna wear on the axle it, like they're not hiding it they have it called out and they use a manual hmm. you know like that that it's 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 there and it's it's a byproduct of the bearing system but it's you know it's not an issue so yeah i i think they've done their their time and research in these pedals like uh gp llama said he'd had some for 12 months uh, which is pretty, pretty mm. incredible. Uh, and yeah, I think they've definitely had these out in the world for a while now. Uh, but yeah, I think it's time will tell with all of this stuff, right? Like it's, it's such an unknown. But I also think it's it's worth pointing out that very few brands get their bearing systems perfect. Uh, I'm, I'm sure they I'm sure they were aware of the issues with the original Wahoo Speed Plays also. Um, yeah. So hopefully there's. There was some uh, indication there for them to know what to look out for. Yep, yep. But yeah, very, very few brands get their pedal systems perfect, and I would say not even Shimano has a perfect track record in this in this regard. So, uh, yeah, you know, if if in two years this this issue is bad enough that I have to change the pedal bodies for the sixty euro or whatever it is to, but hey, brand new pedal bodies with new bearings, it won't be the pedal body; it'll be the axle. If that issue is, it'll be the axle that's worn, and at that point. Potentially, yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, yep. time will tell. We yep. will find out. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, well, moving on, uh, we got some pretty big news in the group set world. Uh, Campagnolo just announced a new Eckhart GT gravel group set, sort of a kind of a modestly lower cost version of the original Eckhart stuff that debuted at the end of 2020. Uh, it's still a mechanical one by 13 setup, and but now there's kind of more aluminum and plastic instead of carbon fiber and aluminum. Uh, so it's about 300 grams heavier overall. But uh, there's also now the potential for a 1048 tooth cassette for a little bit wider range, and you now have an optional smaller 36 tooth chain ring. So you've got, uh, like I said, potentially wider range gearing in general, but also just kind of lower climbing gears if you want them. Um, and then we also have a reshaped hood design that's kind of has like a less of a weird bump than it did before and less of a taper. It seems like it might be a little bit more agreeable for more people. Um, the group set itself sounds pretty interesting. I haven't ridden the original Eckhart stuff quite a bit. Uh, I'm pretty excited to get on this at some point. Um, but, uh, I'm kind of more curious, uh, what Eckhart GT might indicate for, I guess, maybe some future upgrades to Eckhart, but also what it might suggest for Caffaniolo's strategy in the market moving forward overall. It's an interesting one. I, I see this as being very similar to uh, how SRAM released SRAM Force, which in many ways is better than its pre-existing SRAM Red. You know, like they trickled down a lot of a lot of the best bits from from Red, and then you know revised hood shapes and everything like that. And you know, right now in the market, I would rather have the SRAM Force than the current SRAM Red. Uh, and I kind of see similar things happening now with this this Echo. Is, uh, I would I think I'd rather have the the cheaper GT than the the pre-existing Eckhart. And I, I think potentially they're opening the door for electronic, maybe. You know, have a lower-priced mechanical version and then a, a higher-priced electronic version. Uh, that's, that's my... What I find kind of intriguing assumption. about all this is that I think, generally speaking, for people who are familiar with Campagnolo as, as a brand in general, um, they are still very much thought of as a road brand. Um, and on the road... They have clearly gone all in with the kind of ultra premium end of the market. Um, 
And like with this super record wireless in particular, like it's crazy, crazy expensive. They really seem to abandon the mid-range in general overall, at least on the road. Whereas on gravel, they're like with this Eckhart GT stuff, they're moving downstream, not up. Mm. It kind of makes me wonder like as far as like, yeah, I mean, it's like the super record wireless is sort of like their prestige group set. But I think uh, word on the street was that Eckhart is essentially what kept, what has kept Campagnolo afloat for the last few years. And, you know, by some estimates I've heard that it, it accounted for something like half of their sales over the last mm. few years. Um, so is this the sort of thing that, you know, Eckhart and Eckhart GT is kind of more the volume play that brings in the cash so that they can continue to develop the prestige stuff? Yes. I mean, Ronan... <laughs> I can I can visually see you kind of like biting your tongue a little bit there because uh, it seems safe to say that Super Record Wireless has not really gone over super well. I, I'm I'm just biting my tongue because I I could go either way on this. I I just can't really I I, I know from the past few years not to predict what Campagnolo is going to do next, and um, because I'll get it wrong, uh, I'm trying not to do that again. <laughs> I, I was struck by how just how close it, the the new GT is to the existing Eckhart, and and everything from weight to aesthetics to price. Uh, yeah. It's about two hundred euro or three hundred euro between the two group sets. Yeah, it, it's not a huge gap at at all. Mm-hmm. Um, the like the only if I was looking at the only thing I could really point to that might motivate you to go for the. The existing Eckhart is just the the carbon cranks on the existing Eckhart are so much uh, sleeker looking, I think. Well, that, yeah. That's not even fair to say. They're not sleeker looking, but they're just carbon cranks, let's put it that way. Yeah. They're just lighter. I mean, yeah, like most yeah. of the most of that 315, so there's a 315 gram weight difference between Eckhart and Eckhart GT, mm-hmm. and most of that, something like 200 something grams is in the crank. Um, the, the, only, the only other thing, well, the only thing putting me off the GT from the photos that we've seen, because we haven't had our hands in the group set yet, was and the thing that has me questioning a lot of my life choices was just is that the angle that Campag says the lever should be at? Because if you haven't seen the photos, the, the levers are pointed very, very downward. Um but you know, the UCI will be happy they're they're perfectly straight. Um but yeah, I just uh, I I looked at that photo and thought, is that the way they're supposed to be? Mm. I don't know. Anyway, I'm getting this off topic again. Uh on topic, <laughs> um, uh, I I know James, you've had good success with that car, but every time I've used it, I I haven't been able to get it what, as which, perfect in every gear as I would like. What type of cable routing were, was it with the not through the on? handlebar, but obviously, yeah, cable routing through the through the frame through the bottom bracket shell, mm-hmm. um, yeah. So normally full length housings, uh, but for me, I, I kind of still keep coming back to it. And this is this is very much an opinion. I'm not going to claim this to be fact, but I believe 13 speed and mechanical don't mix. I think Eckhart once it goes electronic, sure, it'll probably be really great. But I think 13 speed is just too closely. Spaced, and I think you're asking too much from a mechanical system in terms of uh, avoiding contamination and maintaining adjustment uh, for this to be something that I would actively want on my own bike. My experience is that everything has to be perfect, and if there's, if you even which look and at- it's not in gravel. Gravel, yeah. there's nothing like gravel is a you know is a sport of imperfection. Basically, it's. Just I think like if you look at do. the cables the wrong way. Uh, you can you can kink them and adjust enough that yeah it's not going to be perfect yeah so I think Eka on perfectly kept road bikes makes sense but throw in unknowns of 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 gravel terrain and and dirt and grit and water and everything and I still keep coming back to like twelve speed would be my limit and I even think twelve speed might be too many gears asking you know too much of an for, ask on mechanical for mechanical for some, for some people yeah. So, yeah, and this is, you know, I think electronic, once you have uh, a little motor, servo motor controlling all of this, no issues. But I think, yeah, from a mechanical cable, I, I think, like, there's there's a limit here, and I think we're already at it. So given that Eckhart GT is presumably going to be more of an OE play, I would guess, 
Uh, and given that the expectation is that we're going to see this in higher volumes than Eckhart, do you think we're going to run into more issues with those cable-related problems like you're, that you're suggesting, Dave? No, I guess what I'm, not what, brand, I guess what not I'm wondering. Not on brand new bikes. Well, because I guess what I'm wondering is if you know if Eckhart is if Campagnolo is kind of going for more of a volume play with Eckhart GT, and if they are kind of trying to get back into the OE space a little bit more, at least in gravel, could this potentially backfire in the sense that if people don't have a good experience with Eckhart GT, that it might kind of you know tarnish yep. the Campagnolo brand. One hundred percent. Yeah, that's always the risk of OE OE deals, right? Like if you you know, I I think back, I always liken it to Crank Brothers when they when bike mountain bikes used to come with pedals, you'd have uh, Shimano M five twenties on everything, and then Crank Brothers took over a lot of those deals and provided what were they the MXR pedal or something like that. Something the number terrible. of failures they ha- had on those, and you're basically you're introducing people to a brand and then shying those people away from that brand. Um, I, I always come back to that and uh, who knows, maybe Campagnolo will manage to convert lifelong members out of this, but I also think there's there's a risk there where someone owns a gravel bike for six months and then you know has to have housings replaced in order to maintain the perfect shifting. And, um, yeah. and, and seize the price of the replacement cables. Um, yeah. And I've actually, I've seen that comment from someone who said that their first experience with Campagnolo is with Eckar, yeah, and it'll be their last experience also. Um, yeah, which yep. I, and and yeah, from an OE point of view, I I still question how successful this is going to be. And I don't mean to, I don't mean to crap on Campagnolo too much, but you've got new Shimano GRX has just hit the market. SRAM have just come out with like a, a really strong price point offering in Apex Mechanical, which actually works quite well. Well, got, and Apex Axis, which is going to be Apex pr- pretty close in price yeah. to Eckhart. Yep, and there's there's rumors of you know potentially new things from SRAM coming in the future in the gravel space. Uh, there's rumors of Shimano having electronic in the gravel space, uh, and you've also got like Microshift Sword, who are really pushing hard at that super entry level price point. Um, I just don't see where Eckhart slots in amongst the others. Like, I don't, I don't know why an OE partner would necessarily take that risk when Shimano and SRAM are so dialed in that space. Hmm. Well, uh, I guess as with other things recently that we've been talking about, we will find out what's going to happen here with Campagnolo because we really don't know, I guess, ultimately how this is going to play out. Um, I think it's safe to say that we, you know, I, I, I think I'm comfortable saying that we have a bit of a soft spot for Campagnolo in general, just as for the sure. brand. Uh, and hopefully this goes well, even if it maybe doesn't go swimmingly, but hopefully it goes well um, because, you know, it is nice having three major players in the component space and not two. Yeah. All right. Let's uh, let's take a quick break and then we're going to find out what's on everyone's mind this week. All right. So uh, another little bit of news this week that I think is well, the news itself is not necessarily super applicable to our, our audience. SRAM announced some new hydraulic mountain bike disc brakes called Maven, which are kind of geared more toward the downhill and enduro crowd. But in doing so, in this introduction, uh, there are some technical features on these brakes that I think are worthy of just kind of more general discussion because it's kind of a, a pretty big turn of events for SRAM as far as their mountain bike brakes in general. Right, Dave? What do you, what do you got in your mind about these? Yeah, so I mean, firstly, like if you want a picture of these and you came up into mountain biking in the early 2000s or late 90s, uh, if you can recall the Magura Gustav, uh, then you've probably seen the the new uh, the new calipers for these. But uh, lots of bolts, lots of bolts. Uh, very interesting break. Namely, uh, SRAM seem to be slowly committing more and more toward moving to mineral oil. So we saw the DB8 brake, which was pitched as an OE offering for, uh, yeah, where mineral oil just was a, a more durable fluid. It didn't need replacement every year. The SRAM officially recommend every two years. Uh, but yeah, from an OE point of view, it's, you know, uh, it's it's a slightly safer material to be transporting. But more importantly, that bike could sit on the on the shelf for three years and not need a brake bleed before it went to the customer. Well, uh, and it's less intimidating for, for users to service at home too. Yep. 
Yep. So, so they've SRAM had already done a mineral oil break, but this is the first mineral oil break at a performance end of things that they've done. This is their downhill race bike, uh, race break, basically. Uh, so, yeah, it, it kind of does change the communication for SRAM because for a while there, they're like, dot fluid is the best, mineral oil sucks. And then the DB8 came out and they're like, dot fluid is the best, but mineral oil is, is great for the punters who don't want absolute performance and want to not have to bleed their brakes once a year and now they're like uh dot fluid's great and mineroil's really good and can be just as good in a performance brake designed for world cup downhill racing so uh slowly we're seeing this trend and i think 10 years from now i wouldn't be surprised if shram were fully committed to to mineroil brakes uh at this rate but other than the brake fluid though there are is something very interesting with this brake where they're talking about being able to tune the brakes based on uh, rotor size. So they actually have and, a... Li- and color preferences almost. And color preferences. Yeah. So, I mean, they, they basically, they have this limited edition set of brakes that gives you multiple rotor sizes. And they're basically saying that, uh, yeah, you your power and your brake feel and and all of that is is basically tuned through, through rotor dimensions and that, how you brake and how heavy you are and how you ride will will vary that rotor size. And I think that's quite an interesting messaging uh, and and perhaps something that the bike industry doesn't really talk about too much. And, and basically what Shram is saying is that you should figure out your ideal rotor size through trial and error and through how the rotor itself uh, shows heat. Uh, and that you don't want a rotor to be too cold because then your brakes won't be working at optimal temperatures but it's too hot then you're also basically cooking the system uh and they basically have instructed that people yeah look to the coloring of the rotors after after long descents to figure out whether they're on the right rotor size or not so uh and this is applicable to anyone on on steel brake rotors which is pretty much every bike out there uh every disc brake bike so uh yeah brond brown or bronzed uh suggests ideal heat uh, as far as if you look at the what do you call them? The arms that come off the braking surface. Uh, no coloring suggests you're not getting the brakes hot enough for optimal performance. And uh, any purple or rainbow coloring suggests you've got too much heat. So if you've got too much heat, you need to go up in rotor size. If you don't have enough heat, you should go down in rotor size. And if you've got that brown or bronze coloring, uh, stick to what you're on. How much would like rapid braking to get stopped quicker to check the color of your rotors affect the <laughs> the color that your rotors might be? It's a good question. It's a good question. Uh, yeah, maybe maybe not one super applicable for mid road ride while you're in a group. You said all bikes. Like, do you mean road bikes as well? I think yeah. It, I think it applies to road bikes if you're obsessing over braking performance like if you're wanting to race and have the best braking performance for late braking then i think this is applicable yes well that raises the question however that you know if that sort of idea is supposed to apply to disc brake users in general yeah and if that is meant to also apply to road riders i mean that may very well be but the fact of the matter is that road Bikes in general are far, far more limited in terms of what size rotors you can run at all. Yep. Um, so, you know, a lot of bikes can't even handle a 180 front rotor. No, They're just not designed around no. it. Yeah. Um, and then uh, out back, you know, you, you have the ability to run 160 or 140, but very few people actually run 140, it seems like. Yep. Uh, at least not on the road. I think you see a little bit more in cross. Um, but, you know, I've argued for a long time that uh, it would be nice to see the option of a 180 front rotor on the road. Mm-hmm. Um, if nothing else, you know, you're, you're oftentimes going much, much faster. Your descends are oftentimes much longer. Um, and, you know, the riders aren't necessarily that much smaller necessarily, especially for amateur riders. Um, you know, like I, gravel riding, I think it's it's interesting that you are seeing more bikes being available or at least compatible with 180 front rotors, um, yeah. which is interesting considering those speeds are lower. But you've also got more traction. Well, you've got more rubber on the ground in some scenarios. You do, but I'm thinking just yeah. kind of not necessarily in terms of like overwhelming the contact patch, but just in terms of like heat capacity. Yeah. 
Yeah, for sure. I, I think in gravel, the other thing to keep in mind is a lot of people are bike packing on gravel bikes with loaded loaded riding, uh, where they'll probably also drag the brakes more because uh, you know you're perhaps riding into uncharted territory where you don't know what's around the next bend. So, uh, but yeah, I think there's there's a few factors there, but also gravel bikes, the obsession of weight is not as obvious, and therefore brands can get away with specking 180 rotors and not lose sales as a result of it. Whereas your request on road bikes, I feel, is kind of limited to people living in mountain towns. <laughs> I, I want to go back to the temperature thing for a second. Would an infrared thermometer not be the best option for checking what temperature you're... I, I don't think so okay. because the rotors cool down very quickly after you after you after the brakes are no longer applied. Mm. Um, so I feel like unless you were to do that thing in almost sort of real time, which obviously is not advised, uh, I'm not sure if that would give you a really good indication as to how hot your rotors get. Um, mm. I think you would get an you would get an idea, um, like if you were to take a reading immediately after coming to a stop. Um, I think you would get an idea how hot your rotors may have been, um, but I don't know if you would get a really good indication as to how hot they were. And granted, like, you know, doing it based on color is obviously kind of just more like a, a rough estimate, but maybe that's enough of, a, that maybe that provides enough information to give you, you know, to, to, to give you good guidelines on what size rotor you, you should be using. That was the answer I was hoping for, because what I actually want is uh, temperature gauges in our rotors that show up on our garment head units and we can just track what temperature do, they get to. Oh, dear God, I do not want that. <laughs> How to have a 25-kilogram road bike. <laughs> yeah. there's, a, there's a challenge out there for anybody who can make that happen. Yeah. Ronan, sometimes I wonder if you need so much, if, if, you're, if you want so much data that you'd, you'd almost be better off running, running an iPad on your handlebars because then at that point you really would be getting that splitter effect that you referred to in your TT gallery. <laughs> That's where we're headed. What's this space? <laughs> oh, you weren't expecting me to say that one, U were you? UCI introduces maximum head unit uh, dimensions. Think of the airfoil you can get get from that thing. Mm. It's a whole different kind of, uh, what's it, um, armrest pad. <laughs> yeah. mm. Extension. The, the, the design potential, the design potential, just imagine. Mm. I'm, All right. I'm, thinking, well, I'm, I'm here thinking about. It. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, you know, it could also be a way, like if you paired that with a front-facing camera, you know, it'd be a way to kind of rectify all these issues with people not not looking up the road. Mm. It's all sorts of solutions you're running. You've just cracked it, James. Done. See, mm -hmm. and un until the battery dies, and you have you have no idea where you're going, you just crash. You're like a Raymaker with the Apple. Pro Vision thing. He, <laughs> the Vision Pro, is that what those are? And he was doing a screen recording. When the screen recording stopped, he was riding a bike with, with it on, which he you know recommends you don't do. Um, but when the screen recording stopped, the whole screen went blank. So it just <laughs> so he, for a split second, he couldn't see where he's going. Uh, I don't think he was laughing. He was laughing about it after the fact, but he wasn't laughing at the time. Uh, I, can, I can see that. Mm. I can see that. Well, you know, I'm sure we can figure out a technical solution to that. Mm. All right. Well, anyway, uh, the ceram mavens do sound interesting. And even more interesting is the idea that ceram might be switching to mineral oil. So we will see how things go. But yeah, Dave, I think you, I, I would, if, if I were a betting person, I, I would have to guess that you're right on that one. I, I, I would guess yeah. they're going to switch to mineral oil sooner, I, sooner than I, later. Sooner than later, but I don't think we're talking about the next year or two because there's, there's a lot of still recently revealed breaks that are only just starting to hit the market that are still dot. So I think it's... It's going to be a slow transition. Hmm. Well, I mean, slow, but it seems like a transition nonetheless. All right. Um, moving on, let's uh, let's drop in a quick PSA here because we still got some time left in this this week's show. Um, this is one actually I, I kind of thought about yesterday on my my weekly night ride with with my buddies, uh, and this one is sort of just kind of like a general kind of listen to what your bike is sort of telling you um, because I feel like anyone listening to this podcast and certainly the three of us here have either ridden with someone who's shifting has kind of been making a bunch of noise or, you know, know of someone who has been dealing with that on a regular basis. Uh, and FYI, that's generally your bike trying to tell you something that it needs, you know, it needs some attention somewhere. And uh, my PSA is that it's generally better to give it that attention sooner than later. Um, so on the ride last night, specifically, one of the guys I was riding with was complaining about uh, 
about some shifting, making some noise and just kind of just acting up in general. And that was pretty much right from the get-go, right from when we left the trailhead. Uh, and it turned out, as we found out pretty quickly, uh, his shifter cable was basically slowly coming loose from the derailleur clamp bolt and it eventually let go completely. So thankfully the cable didn't snap. So we were able to reattach and get, get back going. Um, but uh, had we paid a little more attention to what his bike was trying to tell us, it maybe could have saved us some headache. Um, yeah, I think we were fairly fortunate in the sense that it basically just let go and nothing really happened. He was on a climb and so we kind of had to just fix it there at the base of the climb and get him back going again. But um, skipping, chain skipping on a cassette certainly can lead to bigger issues. Uh, it could lead to a broken chain or a cassette, extra cassette wear, a jammed chain, maybe even a crash, depending on what happens. Uh, so yeah, I think it's just kind of like a more general thing that try not to ignore those little things that you think are little because they might not be so little for very long. Yeah. Especially with mechanical shifting. Normally it's, you know, uh, that sort of sudden ticking or slowness in your shifting is often, you know, warning of like a, a breaking cable, uh, you know, especially on a drop bar shifter where it might be fraying. Um, but yeah, broader, I'd say, uh, a very well tuned bike is, is pretty close to silent uh and there's a lot of joy to be had in riding a bike like that and you'll say blissfully silent you might even say yeah uh and any noises is kind of your bike telling you that yeah there's room for improvement <laughs> so yeah little ticks creaks groans that sort of thing one you don't have to live with any of that stuff because almost all that stuff can be fixed uh and two it's often a good time it's often a good idea to fix them just because, like I said, you don't want those little things to become big things later because they can get very expensive. All right. Uh, just a few little news bits to close out this week's show. Uh, Turn, it's the company that you most often associate with kind of like smaller wheeled cargo and folding bikes. They've got a new adventure e-cargo bike called the Orox. The heck is an adventure e-cargo bike? Well, it's a... It's built around either 26 by 5 inch, 27.5 by 4, or 29 by 3 inch setup. So big, big wheels. Uh, it's got a super long rear end, maybe not quite long tail length. It's got a huge rear rack, tons of brazons everywhere, a dedicated frame bag. Uh, and it's got about 200 kilos, about so about 440 pounds of total weight capacity, give or take, depending on the application. Uh, and all of that's powered by a Bosch Performance Line CX mid-drive motor that turns says will go close to 300K with the optional dual battery setup. Uh, it's not at all inexpensive. It's like 6,500 US. Uh, I have absolutely no use for one right now, but I kind of still want one because it sounds like it'd be super, super fun. Just like the, definitely a lot of potential there for backcountry adventure. So uh, I am curious to check one of these out. Uh, I don't know if my friend Ryan over at Front Range Cargo Bikes here in Boulder will be getting one in, but if he does, I'm going to go check one out because I want to see that thing in person. All right. We, I feel like we, I think like this is the first time we've gone an episode without talking about indoor training for a while, but, uh, since we're still very much in the heart of that season, at least for the Northern Hemisphere, uh, it's maybe just with maybe worth catching up on a little bit of news with Wahoo and Zwift. So I know the news broke that they settled their lawsuit last September and they seem to have formed some sort of development par partnership now with Wahoo handling hardware and Zwift handling software. So they've got a new kicker, a Wahoo Kicker Core Zwift 1, basically melds the existing Wahoo Kicker Core direct drive trainer with uh, Zwift's Hub 1, kind of like single sprocket cassette thing. Uh, and basically what you get here is something that's supposedly compatible with every bike in your household, regardless of drivetrain setup, because it has virtual shifting. And so you don't have to deal with whatever drivetrain you've got. Uh, it's got plenty of resistance for most people. 1800 Watts, uh, supposedly goes up to like 16% simulated grade. Best part though, is, uh, the suggested retail price, 600 bucks US, 600 euros or 550 pounds sterling. Also includes a one year subscription to Zwift. Um, I mean, kind of makes me think that, you know, for Which the most worth part of it. Yeah. And it makes me kind of wonder for, for the most part, for people who are just kind of more casually indoor riding, like, I don't know, they don't really need anything more than this, do they? Probably. I, I, I'm sort of wondering, is that like the, a record for kissing and making up, like going from suing each other to now actually it's <laughs> collaborating? It's a pretty dramatic <laughs> turnaround. Yeah. Pretty, pretty dramatic. I mean, it makes you wonder if there was some discussion going on behind the scenes. Um, but either way, yeah, I mean, they, they just settled this lawsuit in September and we're now in February. So what, uh, five months, four or five months down from when they settled, uh, and now they're introducing co-branded products. So yeah, apparently, apparently they, they are on good terms again. I guess they're sending Christmas cards to each other again. Hmm. 
I think, uh, I mean, this is fairly obvious, but I think they probably both figured out they can't afford to sue each other and that they actually really need each other at this time in, in the way the market is at the moment. Well, and and plus the way these things go with indoor trainers, I mean, I think certainly Wahoo has discovered this during the, the pandemic, given all the crazy amounts of ex- excess stock that they have sitting around. It's not like indoor trainers wear out like mm-hmm. bikes that you wear outside. For, and it's not like, you know, you have this propensity to upgrade every season or two for the most part. Um, so, I mean, it really almost kind of seems like once you get one that suits you, that you're kind of in it for the long haul. And like, you know, you're going to have that thing for years to come and something like this where it's not drivetrain dependent. So as long as there's not some drastic, drastic change in rear axle standards or anything that makes it so that your bike can't even attach to the thing. It seems like if someone were to buy one of these, they'd be good for quite a long time. Yeah. I I do kind of wonder though, is there, I don't know if conflict of interest is the right way to put it or something, but with one of the biggest players in the indoor trainer space partnering with the biggest player in the virtual training space, it you know, and you get a free year on Zwift if you buy the new Wahoo trainer at... Yeah, I'm just thinking longer term. Does that sort of is, is is there a problem in the market if the two biggest players are catering to each other and then you know all their trainers from very good brands maybe just start disappearing because yeah I don't know I'm 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 just sort of thinking is there a, is there a negative aspect to this like an anti-competitive kind of yeah I don't know if I would go that yeah. far but yeah. or, or yeah. the or at the very least it suggests that the market is a lot smaller than a lot of people were banking on yeah. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, like maybe Zwift has just seen the writing on the wall and they've decided to just partner with the the biggest hardware partner that they could. Uh, and they're sort of just leaving companies like, you know, Elite and uh, Ceres and Tax to kind of just, you know, figure things out on their own. Um, and, I mean, and at if the I higher were, end. Yeah, and if I were one of those companies, I certainly wouldn't be super happy about this sort of partnership, but so be it. I mean, I would have to guess that Zwift probably has better visibility on what's going on in that space than anybody else. Different different customers. I mean, this mm. this one we're talking about is very much about getting more people on the Zwift platform. You know, it's an it's an entry level point. Yep. And probably a very uh, consu- yeah, just a more casual level user is my is my assumption. I, I think it's kind of a lot of the same people who like went out and bought treadmills after the sure. new year. Yeah. That's yeah. that sort of thing. I think but either way. But yeah, I think the the thing here is that it's probably if these other brands like Elite and Tax are willing to hit the price point that the that Wahoo's hitting here, then perhaps that partnership's available. But there probably isn't a great business case for doing a trainer at this price point for a lot of these brands. No. So I, they can just have the high end. I th- seem to recall something about Zwift would make the the sort of software or the yeah, the the firmware update required for like a single sprocket setup available to other manufacturers when yeah, they first sure. announced the hub one. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if that's happened or not yet, though. I I haven't seen it anywhere else other than yeah. the Zwift Hub 1 and now the new Yeah, Wahoo. No, I, well, don't, I, I don't think there's anything more sinister going on than just Wahoo's yeah. willing to hit this price point and probably other brands can't. Hmm. Yeah, and it's also just worth pointing out that that Zwift Hub 1 is now discontinued. So um, it is... It is discontinued. Uh, sorry, I thought you said it's so not it's, discontinued, but oh, it is. Oh, no. <laughs> so the Zwift Hub 1 is discontinued. It is no longer available. So this, as far as hardware goes, this is it. So, And, and I just want to be clear. I didn't I was, I was. didn't want to suggest anything sinister going on. I'm just sort of thinking bigger picture. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Either way, interesting times in the indoor riding space. Uh, last couple of bits. So Enduro Bearings, they've got a new T47 variant of its max hit bottom bracket where the cup itself is the outer bearing race. Uh, so Enduro says that allows for bigger and more durable bearing balls, which, uh, I mean, it certainly makes sense conceptually. And I've got one, uh, I've got uh, a different size one in my trail bike and that's been holding up quite well. So, uh, good to see them adding more sizes in that. Uh, and finally, if you want to go arrow on your Shimano GRX one by setup, Wolftooth's got a new one by chain ring, uh, setup available in 46 to 52 teeth in both round and oval shapes for gravel racers looking for every last possible advantage. That one looks really good, but the, the key thing to know there is Shimano themselves don't do anything that big as far as chain rings go for GRX. Yeah, so, so that's, it is, that's the key point for it. It is very much aimed at gravel racing for sure. No question. So yeah, hundred somewhere around 100, 120 bucks US depending on size. But yeah, those look pretty good. 
All right. Well, that'll do it for this week's episode of Geek Warning. Couple of bits of homework. Yes, homework for all of you before we leave. So Dave's got a fantastic newsletter called Threaded that goes deep into everything tools oh. and workshop related. I can't believe uh, you're likening my Threaded article to homework. <laughs> it's not the, the the newsletter itself is not homework, but what is homework is that even though it's regularly published on the site, if you want to get it straight into your inbox, you need to sign up for that. So go ahead and do that over on escapecollective.com. Likewise, Ronan's got his own podcast called Performance Process that focuses on performance optimization for both you and your bike. That one's only for Escape Collective members, though. So if you want to hear those episodes in full, make sure you head over to escapecollective.com slash join to sign up. Speaking of signing up, I also just want to remind you that Escape Collective is 100% member-funded, meaning that it's only through your direct financial support that we're able to do any of this stuff, either in written or audio form, not to mention pay our salaries. So uh, thank you for being members, for anyone who's listening to this who is a member. So if you're not a member, though, shame on you. It's kind of like walking into your grocery store and like grabbing an apple and just walking out without paying for it. So I like apples, Honeycrisps in particular. So go become a member, please. Uh, anyway, thanks as always for listening. Uh, make sure you become a member so we can stop yelling at you about it. And we'll see you next week for another episode of Geek Warning. The problem is they need everybody to become members because we're still going to be yelling. <laughs> Leave that you know, if, 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 only, if only we had such specific data that we knew like the names of the people who were listening who weren't members, because then we can like call out people specifically. Mm. That would be amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe we should just start going through the alphabet. Um, Andrew, okay, I know you're with, listening. No, let's start with our own names. Ronan, Andrew, Dave, James, go there's an up. Andrew listening right now that isn't a member. I can guarantee it. The statistics say this. Uh, Andrew, you need to become a member. It's your time. <laughs> right, we'll, see. We'll, we'll see if we see a spike in membership, but we'll, we'll have to we'll have to give a thank to this new strategy. Anyway, thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time. 